Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast. I have a amazing episode in store for you. It's a topic that I think is something worthy of exploration. But before I get there, let's hit the pause button on that. I want to share something with you. And I apologize in advance for taking up a little bit of time to do something that's a bit self-serving. I wanted to share with you something I learned about myself this morning, something that's not favorable. But I thought if I'm going to correct this, the best path would be to share it with others, to not hide from it. Because I know my Yetzer Hurrah is going to be working overtime for me to forget what I just learned about myself. And I figured if I openly share it with others, they'll make sure that I don't allow myself to hide from this truth. Let me explain. I have a morning routine that's been evolving over time. And I'll give myself some kudos that those early morning hours I have worked very hard at refining. And what I mean by that is when I wake up in the morning, and this may be universal, I know many people I've spoken to about this have shared the same thing. As soon as my neshama enters back into my body and I, my consciousness to this world is restored, my yetzahurah is just waiting there to start throwing negative ideas, negative thoughts, worries. It seems like there should be some sort of gentleman's agreement that I should be able to have a cup of coffee first before the enemy comes rushing in. But I guess that's why we are commanded to say the modeani first thing in the morning. The Almighty knows that that is what is going to occur. That is the task he gave the Yetzirah. And that is why he tells us first thing in the morning, say these words to yourself. Say these words to you, but they're from me, reminding you that your first thoughts should be about me. And the only reason I restored your soul to you is because I have challenges coming your way for that day. And I know that you will overcome them. And then we have... So many prayers that we say after we go to the restroom, after we wash our hands, it's these instructions to guide our mind to be thinking of nothing but God when we first wake up in the morning. But then I go into my office and my routine is, which changed a little bit recently, I discovered this area of the sitter, which you guys are probably aware of. I don't know what they're called. I call them the gratitude prayers, but it's the prayer over the blessing of having Torah and being able to study Torah, blessings and showing our gratefulness for being able to make distinctions and deal with new situations, for being a Jew, for for everything, for having sight, for having clothing, all these amazing things that we would normally take for granted. And I say those prayers and then I turn to my Torah study. And I study for a bit and then and and the way my office is set up is I have a desk facing outwards, and that's where I study Torah. That's where I daven. And then I flip around the other side where my credenza is, where my computer is stationed, and that's where I attend to my livelihood and other matters. So then after the Torah study, I turn around and I open up my bank account and reconcile my checkbook and look at my investment account. And I calculate where my bonus is going to be at the end of the month and how am I going to invest it. Then I go work out, I shower up, come in here, do shakaris, and then I turn around, face the computer, and begin my workday. Here's the problem. Here's what I recognized. Here's what I learned about myself. Of all those activities, guess which two activities I anticipate the most? And unbelievably, the answer is, I anticipate attending to my financial records and making those investment selections and anticipating the next paycheck and after shock reset, attending to the business. 
Now, it wasn't always this way. I used to be just so involved with my Torah study that it would anguish me to pull away from it and attend to work. And that went away. It went away when I moved to this community four months ago. And I know what that is now. It's that I was getting divine assistance at motivating me back when I was in isolation. I needed it then, I guess. And now Hashem is saying, now you're in a community. Let's see how you can push ahead on your own. And guess what? I'm floundering. And what concerns me is that if in my current status, God decided that my opportunity to grow in this world was over and he pulled me and brought me to his presence in, the, in front of the heavenly courts where all my thoughts, words, and actions were known to all, I would be so humiliated, so ashamed that what I anticipated the most was attending to matters of the financial sorts that really only God controls. And the only thing I control My reaching out to him, asking for assistance, asking for blessings for myself and for the Jewish people, for learning his Torah, the things that I do control, that I was not anticipating those more. And so I thought to myself, maybe the way to make sure that my current status does not remain so, that I change and become someone that has their priorities in line, that maybe the thing to do would be to humiliate myself in front of you, to feel the shame that I'm feeling right now by admitting this to you, because I'd rather be embarrassed in this world than to be embarrassed in the spiritual realm when I can take no further actions to change who I am. So that was my self-serving diatribe. And I apologize for taking a moment out of your Torah learning for something that was purely of my own self-interest but now I'm going to make it up to you. The other day, I heard Rabbi Busco giving a lecture on Hanukkah, and he started to discuss why women are not commanded to do time-bound mitzvot. And he started to delve into it a little more, but then he stopped himself. And he said, that's actually a lecture unto itself. I immediately paused the video playback and texted him and said, Rabbi Busco, you're right, it is. Bring it to the Shmal Podcast. I want to share this with my audience. It's the whole idea of masculine and feminine. It's something I have talked about in my very early lectures that I recorded that I gave to my friends at a synagogue where they had gender-neutral sitters. And I explained to them that the reason God is referred to as he is not because it's sexist. God, of course, has no gender. And to think otherwise is heretical. But what masculine means is giving. And of course, God, who has everything, is always in a state of giving. And the Shekinah, which is the way I've been taught to understand it, the collective soul of the Jewish people, is in a state of receiving feminine. That's why the Jewish people refer to as God's bride at Mount Sinai. And our task is to turn ourselves into vessels to receive in greater quantities. And we each pivot back and forth between being in a masculine state and being in a feminine state. When I'm davening, I'm in a feminine state, requesting the blessings on back for myself, my family, for the Jewish people. When a mother is providing and caring and giving to her children, she is in the masculine state and her children, both boys and girls, are in the feminine state. This is a key construct of this world, this idea of masculinity and femininity, giving and receiving and receiving through giving. So I asked Rabbi Busco to come on, also known to many as the average rabbi. And let me tell you something. If you have not seen his videos, pause this podcast, go to YouTube, go to the average rabbi and subscribe to these videos I actually am always reluctant now to ask him to come on and do an episode with us because I'm afraid I will take him away from producing another Average Rabbi video. I anticipate them 
tremendously. And as I say that, I realize the reason I anticipate those is because what he is able to do is take great Torah insights and share them with humor. So my body loves comedy. It loves humor. My soul loves Torah. He has this amazing rare quality of being able to infuse them. And there's nothing better than watching one of his videos and learning Torah while laughing hysterically. So do yourself a favor and subscribe to his videos now. So I want to thank you, Rabbi Busco, the average rabbi, for going in deep with us and talking about these ideas around masculine and feminine and how they permeate every area of existence in this world. Thank you so much for that flattering introduction. I do want to mention that if anyone right now is listening or watching an average rabbi video, pause it and listen to the Shema podcast. <laughs> It's very excellent material. But thank you for, for inviting me to speak about this. Something that's so great about what Torah offers us is not just a way of living, but also the insights to core concepts uh, about how the world is built and how it functions. And by having that understanding, that understanding of core concepts and fundamentals of how the universe operates, we can take that and then understand how to apply it in any situation. And so one of these very, very important core concepts is masculinity and femininity. And it's something which is very badly misunderstood throughout, for sure, the world, but even within Judaism, with even Orthodox Jews. So it's, a, it's an important thing to, to clarify. And it could also teeter on the realm of controversial things that I'm going to say today. So I just want to address that the, the matter of controversy in general, by and large, things become controversial and they escalate when they're understood outside of the context from which it was said. And I don't, I don't mean just plucking out a quote and taking it out of context, but I mean outside the context of the framework of understanding of where it was coming from. Classic example I like to give is pro-life and pro-choice. So people on complete ends of the spectrum, someone that's pro-life will look at someone that's pro-choice and say they're baby killers. Like that's what they believe in. They're they're totally okay with killing babies. And someone that's pro-choice looks at someone that's pro-life that they don't care anything about women and they think that women shouldn't have rights and they shouldn't have health care. Now obviously both of these positions are ridiculous. That's not where they're coming from, right? It's only if you understand what, what's the real issue. When does life occur? When is this a soul? When is this a human being which would constitute murder? That's really the only issue. But if you're coming with your assumption that it occurs at this point and they're coming from the assumption that it occurs at that point, within your understanding, you look at the other person and they're either a baby killer or they don't care about women's health, which is ridiculous. So the point of what I want to address today is not to just tell you ideas of what the Torah says. This is the Torah's perspective on, on women that you should take and understand from your own perspective what I'm trying to offer is a completely different perspective, a different framework of thinking, of building from the ground up so that we can understand these concepts, these laws, and how they are manifest in, the, in daily life from a totally different way of thinking. So that's the goal here, and, and hopefully through that we can, uh, we can avoid any controversy. Perfect. We don't refrain from controversy on the Shema podcast. We welcome it. That's what my audience expects. Yeah, I'm not afraid of upsetting people with, with truth, but I don't want people to misunderstand, right? And that, that's, that's the goal here is, is for us to have a, a comprehensive understanding of these topics. So number one, the, when we're speaking about masculinity and femininity, number one is we're not only talking about men and women. And you addressed this in your intro, that the concept of masculinity and femininity is so fundamental that it occurs in any sort of relationship that exists between anything, any plurality, any dichotomy. Whenever there is a giver and a taker, there's masculine and feminine, like you mentioned. And we'll go through why that is and, and understand where that comes from. But that, that's just one thing, right? So when we talk about masculinity and femininity, this is a very broad concept. Because it's even in the Hebrew language. Everything is feminine and masculine. Objects are either feminine or masculine, Correct. That is correct. And it's not only the Hebrew language. I mean, this occurs in, in many different languages around the world. 
and a lot of different cultures I might bring up later have a very similar worldview to what we'll find is the, the Jewish perspective, which, which is interesting. So that's number one. How we're going to break this down, how we're going to understand it is an interesting take as well. King David said, from my flesh, I see you, referring to God. And this is a, a Kabbalistic tradition we have that if you want to understand things that are deeper, that are hidden, well, you can't see it directly. So the way to understand it is you look at the outside, what is revealed, and then infer from how it's revealed what was really underneath. And that's the idea. So man being a model of God's creation, King David said, I can understand you, I can understand spirituality through an analysis of the human body, of my own flesh. So we start from the outer, and then we can intuit and infer the spiritual component within. When we're talking about masculinity and femininity, obviously when we look at the human body, the part we're going to focus on is the area of reproduction. That's where men and women, in this case, are completely different. And that's important, completely different. Not just that they're not the same, they're opposite. They have completely opposite functions, and that's important to understand when we're going through each of these details. So let's look at first, as we've mentioned already, as you mentioned in the intro and I mentioned earlier, the first thing that we notice when masculinity and femininity, a man and woman, interact through reproduction to, to do a process of creation, the first thing that we notice, the most basic idea, is that the male is the giver, the provider, and the female is the receiver. The male provides the seed which becomes implanted in the female, receives it, and takes it. That's, just to recap, as you mentioned, that's why we refer to God as masculine. God is the source of all things. We as humanity, as anything in creation, will always be quote-unquote feminine with respect to God who is masculine, and other relationships as well, as you mentioned, a mother and a child, and me speaking in this podcast to the listener. The listener in this case would be feminine and how to be masculine. So this give and take, it occurs on every level, and that's number one. Number two is let's look a little bit deeper into more of the details of reproduction and how it occurs. What's really fascinating is that the same organs of reproduction that exist in male exist in female in their development stage. It's the exact same organ before gender is determined in the development of the fetus. That organ already exists and then either morphs into what will be a seed producer in the male or an egg holder in the female. I'm using these terms, the non-scientific terms, because I want to get to the core idea of what they are. You got to speak that way to me so I understand. So it's good. So the, the way male produces seed is fascinating because it's completely opposite from what the ovaries do holding the eggs with a woman. The way a man produces seed is that it's constantly producing, right? It's, it's near infinite in number because as long as a man lives, he'll continue producing seed. And not only that, but he produces seed in the average male to a staggering number of seeds in, in each, each day. And each giving of the seed is a ridiculous amount of seeds that each one of them could theoretically become a human being. And it makes no sense from let's say, an evolutionary standpoint, why that should be necessary. It seems completely inefficient to create so many seeds that will be totally useless. What's the point of that? And why did God design it that way? Here's another, our second core concept that we find in masculinity is that not only is the male the provider, but what the male provides is near infinite in potential. Okay, so it's not limited. The seed is constantly producing and to a degree which is unfathomable. And we need a microscope to be able to count all of them. And it's even an approximate number. It's, it's, bas it's impossible for us to actually put our finger on it. So let's jump over to the female now and contrast that and see that the female is not only different, it, it's totally opposite with that regard. What's really fascinating, I mentioned with regard to the fetus, if you would be able to look into the ovaries of a female fetus in the womb, you will find you can count every single one of her eggs, that if she ovulates regularly for her entire life, she has every single one of them already before birth that she'll use. There is a fixed number. It's set. She doesn't create any more. It's from the beginning of her life to the end of her life. There is a very defined amount of what she can provide, which is those eggs. 
and it's unchanging. So again, that's our core concept number two, is that with the masculine, we have a provision of near-infinite potential. And with the feminine, we have a reception of, and its capacity to receive is limited. It's bound, it's set, it's clearly defined. Number three, we find with the masculine that the amount of time and energy that goes into the provision with respect to the entire process is basically infinitesimal. There's one moment where the seed transfers over. And then in the process of the creation of this new child, the creation of this new being, the male's done. That's it. There was one moment of provision, one fleeting moment, and then that's it. And then it's gone. And if there would be no reception of that seed, the seed is very ephemeral. It'll die very quickly. That's our third core concept that we find is that the provision, which is near infinite potential, is just that. It's only potential. It has no existence in and of itself. It's a spark that needs fuel to be fanned into a flame, but it's just a spark. That spark could potentially create fires that could burn the world. It could be enormous. It could be a tremendous amount of energy, but without anything to pick it up, without anything to catch that spark onto, it's just a spark. It comes, it goes, it fades away instantly. As opposed to the female, which her role is very extended. She receives that seed and then begins a long, arduous process of developing that seed housed in the egg to draw it out and bring it into fruition. So we're seeing now the very opposite functions of the male and the female. And now we can identify the, what, what are the powers, the respective powers of the two. Each one has a strength and a weakness. The strength of the male is that it initiates and it has all of the substance to provide. The male initiates and carries all of the energy. That's Nothing exists without the male. It starts there. But its limitation is that it can't bring it to fruition. It's all meaningless. It's all worthless and insubstantial without a reception. And the female, we see that the great strength of the female is that it can bring life into the world. It can bring energy, which was only potential, into manifestation and create that harmony. That's something that the male can't do. The limitation, of course, of the female, number one, is that it doesn't carry any of its own energy. It's only a vessel which takes external energy into it. So without male, it doesn't have any anything to work with. That's number one. Number two is that it is the essence of limitation. That what it's receiving, what the female is receiving is, again, near potential, near infinite potential of energy. And the female's job is, it, it can be looked at as very sad, because the female's job is to kill all of that extra potential, which every single one of those seeds could have been a life. And the female's job is to destroy all of the seeds, every single piece of that potential, and narrow it down to just one, to pick just one to bring it to fruition. It's very bittersweet. Because on the one hand, all of this tremendous potential needs to die. But on the other hand, she brings life. So these are the respective powers of male and female. It's a Torah lesson and a biology lesson that I forgot from my youth. So this is fantastic. That's what I'm here for. It seems like this is the total analogy, like what King David said, to how God created the universe. I mean, he has infinite potential to give. Is that where you're going with this? And then we have this finite capacity to receive. Right. Exactly. Let's take that analogy even a little bit deeper. There is a piece of Talmud where one of the rabbis says, I see a verse in the prophets that says, Hashem tzur The standard translation of that is, For God created the world, formed the world. If we look into the Hebrew, we analyze the words, we see that there's something deeper happening. Beko Hashem, we have two different names of Hashem here, Ka and Yudke Vavke. The ka, the yud and the he, he takes that and he says, with a yud, beka Hashem, with a yud and a he, Hashem formed olamim. Olamim in Hebrew means worlds. It doesn't just mean world. So this rabbi said, I see from this verse that Hashem took a yud and a he, and he created two worlds, this world and the next world. But he said, I don't know which one is which. Which letter was used to create this world and which letter was used to create the next world? So I see a verse in Genesis 
It's the first verse in chapter 2 of Genesis. Elu todos shemayim ba'aretz behibaram. These are the products of the heaven and earth in their being created. Behibaram, in their being created. If you look in, the, in an actual Torah scroll, the letter He in Behibaram, in their being created, the letter He is written small. And so that's a hint that there's something happening here. So he said, I see from that verse that these are the outcomes of the heavens and earth, meaning this world that we have created here. Behibaram, with a He, Baram, He created them. So I know from this other verse in, in the prophets that Hashem created two different worlds, this world and the next world, with a yod and a hay. Which one is which? I see from Genesis that he created this world with a hay. That means that the world to come, Olam Haba, was created with a yod. Great. What does that do for us? First of all, if you're at all familiar with Hebrew grammar, you might have intuited that the letter hay is a feminine letter. It, in fact, to make a word feminine, you usually just put a hay on the end. In fact, the word for man and the, fact, and the word for woman are very similar, and the only letters they don't share in common are the yod and the hey. The word for man is ish, aleph, yod, shin, and isha is a woman, aleph, shin, hey. So there's a yod that the man has and a hey that the woman has. It's hard for, for us listening on the podcast. If you can, if you don't know what these letters look like, try to do a Google search, look what the letters look like, so you, I'll try to do my best to describe it. If you look at a, a letter yod, the letter Yud is really just a small dot right at the top of the line. It doesn't get brought down. When a scribe is writing letters in a, in a Torah scroll, you always start at the top and you bring it down. That's, it's reminiscent of energy, which begins in the heavens, begins at the top and gets brought down to this world. The letter He doesn't get brought down. It's the only letter which just stays there at the top. And that's reminiscent that the letter He is just spiritual potential. It doesn't get brought down at all. It just hangs up there in the heavens. Whereas the hay is a combination, fascinating, of two letters. One is the letter Dalad, which is the letter just before it, which spans across the top and then comes down at the bottom. So that's reminiscent. Also, the letter Dalad is the number four. This resembles the four corners of the earth, the four directions, meaning space and tucked down in the corner inside the Dalad is a little upside down Yud. And so what we have formed with the letter He is a Yud, which is contained within the space of Dalad. And what this means is that it's the concept of having spiritual potential, which is now contained and, and pumped through a vessel, contained within a, a context. That's the letter He. And this is what the essence of femininity is. It's not a coincidence that the man, Ish, has the letter Yud, Isha has the letter He. Masculinity, as we've mentioned before, is spiritual potential, and femininity is not just the receiving of that, but it's the receiving and then bringing it to fruition, housing that spiritual potential and giving it life, having it exist here. So the world to come, therefore, bringing it back, the world to come is just the letter Yud because it's just spiritual potential. It doesn't exist here yet. It doesn't have any sort of existence it exists potentially. It's the world to come. Whereas this world, which we see divine presence, which is manifest in it, we have spirituality. This is brought down into a context, into a construct that was created with the letter He. So this world is considered feminine. The world to come is considered masculine. I'm a little lost on why the world to come, Olamaba, is masculine. Because that is something that we are receiving or we hope to earn to receive it, correct? That's true. Well, here's the thing. With any of these relationships of male and female, they're all relative. So you are male when it comes to your wife, and you're, and you're female when it comes to your parents, right? So the world to come is not, it, we, we don't view it as we're receiving it, or from our perspective, you know, what we're receiving. The juxtaposition is between the world to come and this world. Right, so the world to come exists from our perspective only in, in its potential form. The world to come exists only in potential. It's all potential energy which hasn't come to fruition yet. And so that is the, the concept of masculinity is, is um, energy, pure potential, which doesn't have any sort of way of, of coming to form. Got it. Now, there's another concept I learned that Hakma wisdom is male. It's the seed. 
that inspiration. And Bina, understanding, is feminine. It is the, the womb for that inspiration then to nurture itself and grow into dot knowledge. It's that same concept. So once I've learned that, I always know that once I get some inspiration, an idea for whether it's business or an idea in Torah, I immediately write it down and make sure I, I nurture it, that I create a womb for it and, and focus on it so it develops. So I, I see that that whole masculine, feminine potential, everything you're describing. I, I've sort of seen that happen with ideas, which is the way a man creates. And like a woman, we're sort of limited to just creating our ideas and bringing those into the world. But you can definitely see that everything's very fractal. It's like that same concept over and over again throughout the entire creation. Right. And in fact, like you said, Bina understanding, it helps when it comes over time, but it can only occur retroactively, meaning after a certain amount of time, then you see from the beginning what it always was. Now that you brought this up, Chachma parallels the faculty of sight and Bina parallels hearing. And what's really interesting is that when we look at the difference between sight, seeing and hearing, seeing all of the information is presented to you instantaneously. That's what we mentioned is, is masculinity. It's all present. It's all right there in one shot. There it is. And you could close your eyes and remember what you've seen theoretically. But that's remembering what you've seen is already is already moving into another stage of, of Bino. But when it comes to hearing, hearing can't be in one shot. As I'm speaking right now, you're only hearing one sound at a time, which is completely unintelligible. It's only after I finish a word, a sentence or a complete idea that you put it back together in your head, you collect all of the information, and then only after having heard all of it, you look back and are able to put it together and understand what the message was. So, to, I mean, to take that even further, I'm sitting in the room with you right now. I can see this entire room. I can see everything that's in it, and, and you can too. But our listeners aren't here. They can't see it. Theoretically, what we could do, we could take the next however many days describing every single detail of the room, describing the dimensions of the walls and how high the ceiling is, what kind of furniture is in here, the color, literally every single detail we could give one after another. And mentally, a person can reconstruct in their head what the room looks like. So they can arrive at the same results of Chachma, but they're doing it through Bina, which can only occur after time. That's that manifestation when it gets built over time. This is also a feminine idea as well. Okay, that, that makes sense. That's going to feed into a lot because it, Bina is time-bound. It's linear. And so I can see how this is going to sort of plug into some other concepts you're going to be discussing. Yes. So let's talk about what the question you started off with. Why is it that women are exempt from positive time-bound commandments? So first of all, let's clarify what that means. There are 613 commandments, 248 positive ones, 365 negative ones. Positive commandments are saying, build a relationship with God. Here's something which doesn't exist. This is your obligation to create a relationship, do something active. Whereas the 365 negative commandments imply a previously existing relationship. Just don't break it. So the 365 negative commandments, that applies to every Jew, male, female, doesn't matter. When it comes to positive commandments, what are we meant to activate within ourselves in order to perfect our spiritual character? What should we engage in? So there are many of those which are specifically meant to do at a specific time, either during the day or during the year, during the week. Like, for example, putting on tefillin. Putting on tefillin... We derive from the Gemara, from the Talmud, that it is meant only during the day. Only during daytime, not during nighttime. Also, not during Shabbos and Yom Tov. That's more debatable, but for sure it's not, uh, it's not to be meant during the night. So there is a fixed time period where this is conducive for our growth. Same with, a, with tzitzis, tzitzit. It's... Is actually a dispute. Is it meant for only during daytime or on a daytime clothing as opposed to pajamas or things like that? We are stringent for both, but the point is that it's also relevant only to daytime. Now, these kinds of commandments are 
meant to rectify our soul, are meant to develop us in a way which is meant to give us definition because it's bound within time itself. It's meant to lock us down and tap into the power of time. Let me interject real quick because I do want to go back and address something that I have a question on. And I hope this doesn't take us too off course, but I never knew seat seats were not allowed at night. Like, do you take off your tzitzit katan once the sun goes down? No, uh, we don't take it off. As I mentioned, it's a dispute among the Rishonim, medieval commentaries. It's definitely meant for during the day. We derive that from the verse that says that you shall see them. So from the fact that you should see your tzitzis must mean that it's during some daylight hours. Now, based on that, one opinion is that it's only relevant during daytime, as we just mentioned, that's the implication. Another opinion is that it applies to a kind of garment that you would wear during the day. If you would wear it at night, it would also be required to have tzitzis on it. So it's a dispute whether or not wearing your talit katan would be a mitzvah during the night. So we do uh, just in case. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So back to this. So tzitzits and tefillin are time bound during the day. Yes. Now, that is only going to be productive for a soul which requires being bound. As we've seen before, the essence of femininity is definition, is limitation, being bound. That is the power of femininity, is the essence of what it is, is to take energy which is potential and limitless and to limit it, to limit it so that it can have an expression. If energy is is potentially limitless... It can't exist in this world. It doesn't have boundaries. The essence of femininity is to give boundaries, is to be limited. And therefore, the feminine soul is already in essence when time is a condition in the performance of the mitzvah. That means that it, requi- it, it has in its essence a rectification, a, something that's productive for the soul in binding it to something being limited, being controlled, being set and defined. That's productive for masculinity because it provides an expression for masculinity. It it does something helpful that it doesn't already have. Whereas the feminine soul is already in its essence something which is clearly defined and set and limited, as we mentioned. So there's no prohibition for a woman to perform one one of these commandments like tzitzit, for example, but it would be meaningless. It wouldn't provide any sort of productive change within a woman, within her soul. So let me state this, make sure I understand it. So a woman, just like she has a womb that holds a seed that nurtures it into something, she herself, her soul is almost like a, a womb. And we, on the other hand, men that are masculine, we're just this energy that needs to be contained and focused for things like davening at a certain time or wearing seat seats and to fill in. Is that an accurate way of stating what you just said? Yes. Yes. And let's take this even, well, let's bring it down to make it more tangible. The essence of masculinity is to be uncontrolled, is to be limitless in potential. In fact, it's, it's an, it's why we find that men are classically more immature than women in general, because not defining who you are, not defining what you're capable of, leaving your options open. That is part of the essence of masculinity, is having all of your options open, having all of that infinite potential, and choosing a path, choosing what you are going to do with your life. Right? This is something which is difficult, and it's counter uh, to the nature of men. It's like when you go into marriage, it bounds up all that potential. I can go in a gazillion different directions and they help us focus it on the purpose that we truly have. But it is also why we find that there's only a commandment for men to get married. We don't find that the Torah commands women to get married and have children. The Torah commands specifically men. And again, because it's within the nature of femininity to find one husband, to find someone that they can bring to expression. But masculinity finds that very unattractive, monogamy. The essence of masculinity is to, to keep your options open, to spread your seed as far as possible, 
right? To, to give full expression to everything as, as much as you possibly can. And so therefore, men are commanded counter to their nature to be controlled, to limit themselves. And that is productive for the, for the male soul. And in fact, the more spiritually powerful a man is, the more that urge occurs within himself. People that are very low and people that give in to their evil inclination, to their Yetzirah, they are very desensitized. And they could look at pictures of, of women that are not modest, and it might not move them that much. They're maybe spiritually diluted. But someone that has a tremendous amount of spiritual potential, someone that has a lot of energy and has worked on themselves, so their Yetzirah, their evil inclination is even stronger. It's a fascinating concept. You, you might not think it sounds counterintuitive, but we, we actually find this in the Talmud. One of the great sages from the Talmud, Abaye, saw two young people walking together. They were walking outside of a city, and uh, the young man offered to escort the woman home. And Abaye saw this, and he said, this is, this is not going to end well. They're going to end up uh, interested in each other and, and becoming intimate. I'm going to follow them. I'll trail them like a spy. And I'll be able to save them if, you know, when it comes to that time, I'll jump out, make it awkward, whatever. I'll save their souls by doing this. So he trails this couple walking. Eventually, they come to a fork in the road. And the man's home is one way and the woman's home is the other way. And they say goodbye to each other and part ways and they each go home on their own way. And nothing happened. They were alone, secluded. They could have gotten away with it, but nothing happened. And Abaye was so distraught by this he went and collapsed onto a tree and was sobbing, completely dejected, saying that I know that if I was in his position, if I were in his position, I for sure would have stumbled in that area. How could it be that I'm so low and so spiritually decrepit and this, this nobody is, uh, is above me? I've spent my entire life studying Torah and perfecting myself and I still haven't even reached the level of this commoner. So Elijah the prophet came to him at that moment. He said, you shouldn't be so dejected. Don't feel sorry for yourself. This is exactly what you have accomplished. Anyone that's greater than their fellow, their Yetzirah, their evil inclination is stronger than theirs. Meaning Abaye had such great spiritual potential that translates into a natural physical desire to want to spread it. But that's precisely why there's so many mitzvot that God gives us from bris milah, so that whenever we see that part of our body, we are being reminded of our covenant to overcome our animalistic nature. We have seat seat to remember to guard our eyes. You know, everything that he is having us do is to overcome that innate nature because he knows, like you just said, that the more we study Torah and refine ourselves, the more we're going to be challenged in that area, which is why... Those mitzvot are all there to keep us, all those energies spiritually and physically focused on the right thing. We'll add one more aspect of, uh, of this, which is something that also people struggle with, is gender roles in society and culture. The fact that the man is the breadwinner and the woman is meant to stay home with the children. And it seems very uh, primitive and backwards. Well, it's not a coincidence that basically the entire world had functioned this way for so long. Now, if you take, again, this comes to which kind of perspective you're working with, what kind of framework uh, of thinking that you're starting with from a Western perspective that male and women, men and women are totally the same on a, on a core level. So what should be the difference? Why should the man work and the woman stays home with the kids? It makes no sense, right? But understanding what masculinity and femininity is on a spiritual level from this perspective, it makes perfect sense that on a physical level, this manifests as well. The man is the provider. The man goes out, provides the income, provides the food, and the woman brings it to fruition. She takes that flour, she makes it into dough, she brings that, makes it into bread, something which is actually edible. And you have this beautiful harmony of these powers between male and female, that the male provides all of the potential, the female brings it into fruition, into manifestation, and then it becomes something real, something usable. And that applies with children as well, men provides the children, the woman raises these children, puts them in the home. That doesn't mean that the man shouldn't be involved in raising the children, uh, but the, the mother is the primary source of raising the children because she is who is building the home. And this applies to Torah study as well. 
classically men are the ones that learn Torah, and women don't so much. Well, the idea is that the male, again being the provider, brings in that abstract, esoteric, spiritual knowledge, internalizes it, and then through his relationship with his wife, it becomes real. She gets from him, from his energy, from his uh, support of her, she's able to take his Torah and make it into a home, make it real. Children growing up in a Jewish home comes from their mother, the woman of the home, manifesting the Torah that her husband brings back. And this is how the Jewish people survive. That makes sense because it's one of the reasons that when we visited with the Bestin, and as you know, Shauna is going through a conversion. So we were both sitting in front of the Bestin. The one they were really getting on and questioning and making sure they were doing everything right was me. And I stopped them and I said, what do I have to do with this? I'm, I'm already Jewish. Pick on her. No, I didn't say that. I said, like, find out everything amazing she's doing. She's the one that wants to go through the conversion. And what they explained to me was, yes, but you are the one that is going to be leading and helping bring the tour in the home. And we want to make sure that you, you aren't going to be the weak link for her. We're not really worried about her. We're about you being the weak link and creating problems for her with her spiritual growth and Torah observance. Absolutely. You're the sun, she's the moon. So that, in fact, in the, in the Hebrew language, the, the word for moon, levanaz, feminine, and the word for the sun, shemesh, is masculine. And I alluded to this earlier that there are other cultures as well. For a time when I was living in Israel, I was studying Chinese medicine and the philosophy behind it. There's a very prevalent concept that most people are familiar with, a very famous idea, yin and yang. And this dichotomy of yin and yang is yin is feminine. But in addition to feminine, it's also the concept of darkness and cold, death, winter, and the moon. And the yang is masculine, is life, energy, fire, heat, the sun. So it sounds from a Western perspective to say that femininity is aligned with death and coldness and darkness and things like that. That sounds pretty bad. That sounds disparaging. But this is the idea. It's the same idea that, that we find in Judaism as well. I'm not, this is not an endorsement of studying uh, Chinese philosophy, but I'm just bringing out that this isn't unique to Torah thinking. This is something which is intuitive in many civilizations, many generations throughout world history, that we find that femininity is the moon, is a reflection of light. It is the concept of death because it has to push away potential energy in order to give life to what was given to it. This is really the idea that we want to come out with, uh, practically speaking, with our relationships. Is it's, it's a mistake to think that in Judaism that the worldview is that women are second-class citizens. Thinking in terms of superiority or inferiority is, is just uh, it's a mistake. It's immature to think in those kinds of terms. What we really need to understand is that there are two opposite forces that exist. And they're opposite because they fit perfectly together and they need each other. The male without the female is incompetent. And the female without the male is invaluable. The male needs the female for expression and the female needs the male for provision. They have these opposite powers, and only through the perfect harmony of the two of them can they create something real. This is what shalom bias really means. People have heard this idea before. If you haven't heard of shalom bias, people translate it as peace in the home. And that's, I guess that's literally the translation of these words. It's a reference to the study of marital relationships and how to improve marital relationships in Judaism. But what shalom bias means is not peace. Shalom could be translated as peace, but that's not what it means here. I mean, that's the goal. The goal is just to not be fighting with your spouse. That's what we're, we're working to achieve. It's much more than that. Shalom doesn't just mean that you're not fighting. Shalom means harmony. It means that when every piece is of a system is functioning exactly the way it's supposed to, it's fulfilling its role, then the entire system functions in harmony and creates something beautiful. The male in the relationship needs to understand what his role is. 
what he is meant to do and what his obligations are. The female needs to understand what her role is, what her obligations are, and their opposite in terms of the relationship with each other. If they each understand it, they each fulfill their respective roles, they become one unit which creates this beautiful harmony, creates life, creates an ongoing of the Jewish people. Makes sense. And just like now that it's Hanukkah, and I learned from your amazing average rabbi video on Hanukkah that the man and the wife only need to light one menorah together because they are one entity that's performing the mitzvah together. And we each perform our independent mitzvah, but we each get credit for what the other one is doing. Now, bring this back to the bigger picture because if we as a, as a Jewish people are actually need to all be feminine, correct? Because God is masculine. You know, this, he is the one that wants to bestow pleasure and give and give. And the only reason we all aren't billionaires of perfect health and perfect, incredibly high IQs like you is because we haven't, we haven't nurtured that feminine element of ourselves. You know, I was taught by Rabbi Cohen that the Shekinah is the collective soul of the Jewish people. She represents, to use some Kabbalistic terms, Malkut, the receiving of the blessings. And, I, and God is the one that's bestowing the blessings. So we're, we're working as a people to refine ourselves, to become vessels, to receive more, to basically be a, a womb, a vessel to receive the blessings from God so we can nurture and develop the relationship that we used to have with him back when we had the temple. Is there something too where I'm going with this that there's this aspect we have to refine as well, whether we're men or women, in our relationship with God? Yeah, in that sense, you're, you're 100% right. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the former Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, he said that the core Yetzirah, the most root fundamental Yetzirah that a person has, especially a man, is don't tell me what to do. I'm God. Right? And this is our challenge is that we need to be putting in maximum efforts. We need to be creating ourselves and building ourselves and providing that energy. But at the same time, we need to recognize that I'm just a vessel, that I am not God. I am not the source of energy. I'm not the source of reality and, and power or anything like that. I am just a vessel that's been created here. And when I can channel what's being provided to me from God, then that's what truly gives me expression. So in that sense, we need to harness our feminine capacity. So Rabbi, I, I appreciate you, you bringing those insights. I was always not very clear on why women were not commanded to perform these time-bound mitzvot, like praying and, and wearing tzitzits and tefillin. That makes sense now based off that beautiful way you brought all back to the the feminine, masculine aspects of reproduction and all these things, the entire construct of the world, that women don't need the constriction of time to express their fulfillment of God's will, and we do. And I always just understood it before is that men are were more simpletons, so we need more mitzvot and instructions to do what we need to do. But I like your explanation a lot better, although there's probably some truth to the one I had before we came into this interview. So thank you very much for your time. And on behalf of the audience, uh, we appreciate getting a much more clear conceptual understanding of this concept of masculine and feminine and how it plays in throughout all of God's creation. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.